chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be uh, looking at verses 21 through 26 uh, this morning. And if you have not been with us over the last uh, couple months, we have been walking through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He has gathered the disciples and his disciples Big D and, and then disciples Little D and then other people listening to his teaching um, on a mountain, on a hill, uh, probably in the north side of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. If the Sermon on the Mount has uh, been convicting as uh, it has been to me, and when I say that, I don't mean convicting in, in the sense that it causes a false guilt or a guilt that um, makes us feel unworthy, but it, that it's convicting in the way that reminds us of, of who we are before God and reminds us of who God is in our life and, and causes us to love Jesus more. If it has been convicting to you as it has been to me, uh, buckle up, because <laughs> we are now getting to the meat of, of Jesus' words. He begins with the foundation of the Beatitudes. Uh, the entire sermon is, is um, based on that beginning point of the Beatitudes, which are a, a description um, and of the characteristics of a of a kingdom citizen, of a, of a Christ follower. Uh, they tell us that we come before a holy God with um, empty hands, that we are bankrupt before a holy God. And when we realize there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, we're, con we're confronted with our sins, and it causes us to, to mourn, to mourn over our sins, and that mourning leads to, leads to a repentance. And when God grants us that repentance, we, are, we bow before him in meekness, before his majesty. And when we understand who God is and who we are, it creates in us a desire for obedience, a righteousness. We hunger and thirst for righteousness because of who God is and, and because of our lowliness before him. That allows us in our in our humility, um, to be merciful because we have experienced the mercy of a loving God and we are able to share that mercy with one another. It causes us to be pure in heart and that's simply not that we are so um, good, but it is a pure in heart that we, we focus on one thing. We are horses in the Kentucky Derby with blinders on and we only have we only have a vision of Christ, and we are pure in heart in that there are no idols. And when idols come into our lives, we, we fight against those to, keep, to stay focused on Christ. And when we do that, it allows us to be peacemakers. In our church, among our brothers and sisters, between one another, but also between unsaved and God that God has made peace with us and we have peace with God and we want that for others. That's why, that's why Matthew ends his gospel with the Great Commission to go and proclaim and as you go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them the things that I have taught you and I will be with you till the end of the age. And when we do that, we are just loved by the world, aren't we? No, we are persecuted 
for righteousness sake, for doing what is right before God, the world persecutes us because this is so countercultural to our world in which we live. But because we understand all of that, we live in a world as salt and light, to preserve society as salt and, and as light, to be a light of the gospel and the things we do and the words that we say. We do that because everything in Scripture points to Jesus. And Jesus says, in order to live this way, you must have an exceeding righteousness. And we talked about that last week. We, our righteousness, the things we do and our attitudes, must exceed that of the most religious people in their society at the time. And Jesus is now about to tell us what that looks like. And in chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, he's going to give us six examples. He's going to explain these examples and, and as examples of what this exceeding righteousness looks like in real life. In other words, this is where, where the rubber uh, meets the road. And these examples originated in the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. It's true that, that uh, they were misused, they were misinterpreted by the scribes and Pharisees. They added to the law. They did all of these things. But the original source of these, of these examples is the Old Testament. Why is he using examples? Why doesn't he just say, you know, um, don't be angry. Don't have, don't have thoughts of, of adultery in your mind. Why doesn't he just give us the commands but uh, without the explanation? And I think the answer to that is that there was a wise philosopher uh, years ago. His name was Mr. Rogers. <laughs> you know Mr. Rogers. Some of the kids probably don't, a little past their time. But Mr. Rogers once said, attitude is caught, not taught. And what he meant by that is parents should do what they love in front of their kids in the way that they love it. And if they do that, their kids will love it. Dad, if you enjoyed fishing... Take your son fishing and just love fishing, and that will be contagious for him. He will catch it. You won't have to teach him. He will catch it from what you love. As a matter of fact, Mr. Rogers said in, in one of his seasons, he, he invited a, a cellist, I guess, is played, a guy who plays a cello, or, you know, that big thing that nobody plays. Well, he said, I just want you to come every week. I want you to play it because you love playing it. I don't want you to teach the kids how to play it. I just want you to play it because you love it. And he did. And he said, during that season, the, the sale of cellos went up dramatically because he loved it and he showed the kids that he loved it. And after that season, the sale of cellos went back down. And so, dads, you know, the best thing that you can do for your kid or your children, now 12 or 9 or 6 or however many you have, best thing you can do for your children is to love your wife well in front of your children. And when you do that, you're teaching your boys how they need to treat their wives when they're married, and you're teaching your girls what kind of husband she needs to look for. Right. Now, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning. <laughs> But that's free of charge, free of charge. 
So Jesus takes these commands and he gives their true meaning. Some people say he gives their original meaning. And, and we believe that when he gave these, uh, the, the commandments were given and we were to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Some say that he is, um, he's explaining them, he's advancing them. And, and that may also have some truth in it because the, the uh, revelation of Scripture is progressive, and it begins at creation with the creation ordinances, and he gives some instructions on how to live. And then Noah adds to that with, okay, it's okay to eat meat, and he adds some more uh, revelation. And then a peak comes with the Ten Commandments, and Moses gives the law, and God reveals more how they should live. And the prophets call people back to the law. And some people say that this is another peak in the revelation, and, and that Jesus is, is advancing these commands. And so there's probably some truth in, in both, of, both of those. Um, but he doesn't do this because he has come to set aside the law, that the law is, is worthless anymore, but he's come to teach us how to live in the kingdom. He has come to introduce something new. He's not simply repeating the commands and calling us to uh, fulfill the commands. He's actually going to show us how to really fulfill these commands. He's truly become, uh, some would say, the new Moses. Uh, he is the authority now. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, meaning this, the Old Testament predicts the Messiah. So Jesus is saying, I am that fulfillment. I am the Messiah. He has come, Jesus, as the fulfillment of the, of the Old Testament. And now he gives a fuller meaning to these commandments. A, an ancient or a very old um, theologian, and we don't even know, um, most people don't even know who said this, but uh, the, the, the quote was this, Christ's commandment contains the law, but the law does not contain Christ's commandment. Therefore, whoever fulfills the commandments of Christ implicitly fulfills the commandments of the law and the prophet. In other words, Jesus is claiming in chapter 7, uh, verse 24, everyone who then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is saying, I am giving you the instructions on, on how you are to live. And in verse 29 uh, of that same chapter, it says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There is no prophet or no rabbi who would say, you have heard it said, but I say, and still live. That rabbi, rabbi or that prophet would be killed. And Jesus is now saying, I am the authority of God's truth. I speak the words of God. So he gives six examples of what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He's going to say in these chapters, if you want to avoid committing, or in these verses, if you want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, understand the importance of reconciliation and the urgency of reconciliation. He begins with what is probably the most universal attitude that we face and probably 
the most dangerous. He's going to say three things. He's going to redefine what murder means in verses 21 and 22. And then he's going to show us the importance of reconciliation in our relationships. That reconciliation, it trumps worship. And then he's going to say reconciliation is urgent in our relationships and that reconciliation can save your life. So let's look at those three things in, in the time that we have uh, today. First of all, let me just read for us those verses, verses 21 through 26 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to, to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the, to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus begins in verses 21 and 22 by redefining for us murder. Murder, he's going to say, is contempt. Contempt for a brother, contempt for a brother or sister is a hate crime. And it's a crime that has eternal consequences. He begins in verse 21. And he says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. We know that comes from where? The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 or, or, or Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall not murder. Murder is taking the intentionally taking a life. Murder is the, it's really the, the first crime in the Bible. Not the first sin in the Bible, but it's the first crime in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, we're told that, that Cain and Abel went out to the field and Cain killed his brother. Cain murdered his brother. First crime in the Bible. When we read no murder, it's not only related to protecting life, but it's also related to God's image. In Genesis, right after the murder, or a little after the murder, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. The, the consequences of murder. And then it says, For, or because, God made man in his own image. So murder is an assault on the image of God. Right. Who is a murderer? Well, say anyone who kills is a murderer would be the easy answer. But in Numbers chapter 35, we have a, a detailed list of who would be uh, considered a murderer. In Numbers chapter, chapter 35, verse 16, we read these words. It's, it's in the context of um, 
of the city of refuge, if you were to kill a man or a woman or anyone accidentally, it was not intentional, you could, you could flee to a city of refuge where you would be safe and the, the avenger of death, which was probably a relative of the person you killed, could not kill you. And in that context, in verse 16, he says, but if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool, with a wooden tool that cause, could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself be the, put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if, if he pushed him, if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or an enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. God seems to take murder pretty seriously in Scripture. In Revelation 22, he tells us that the murderer will not enter you, are, you will by no means get in if you are a murderer. We're somewhat desensitized today to the horror of murder. We watch shows or we stream shows, and most of the shows that we watch, some, somebody gets murdered. We see murder, and it, it, we're not personally affected by murder, and, and it becomes this thing that is out there, but, but we, never, we never really grapple with it. We watch it on the shows. We read it every day. You know, now when I think about Chicago, I don't think about the Cubs, but I think about the weekend wars that go on in the streets of Chicago and the young people who are killed. When I think about New Orleans, I don't think about... Mardi Gras, but I think about uh, an article I read this week by uh, someone in New Orleans said, if you come to our city, don't come alone. Always be in a group. New Orleans, 116% increase in murders in the last three years. Mass murders no, murders no longer surprise us. Mass shootings in, in schools, we see it, and, and it's hard to, to grasp in our minds because it's out there and it's not... Here. But you know, on the other hand, we're consumed with thinking about murder. How many of you lock your doors in your home every night before you go to bed? Yeah, everybody's going to raise your hand. Why do we do that? To keep the murderers out of our house. It's all around us. We don't think about it, but we do think about it. Why are we so consumed with murder? Well, John 8, tells us that um, they wanted to do the will of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. The, Satan is a murderer. He is the author of murder. Matthew chapter 15, back to our, our book. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 says this, verse 19, For out of their heart come evil thoughts, murder, 
adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Murder comes from a depraved heart. Murder is not caused by any system created in the world. Murder comes from a depraved heart. Satan is the author of, of murder. We, in our hearts, are the source of murder. So far, as Jesus, if Jesus is preaching this, we're right with him. We're all against murder. We don't want anyone to be murdered. And the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, you know, he may have been a little off when he was talking about our righteousness, but he seems back on track now. Do not murder. Because this is exactly how they would have interpreted this commandment. Maybe they were shocked in his previous statements, but now, you know, they're with him. Come on, let's, let's hear some more of this. And then he comes to verse 22. But, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. When we read no murder, we think that's an easy one. I've never, never murdered, never killed anyone. I think I can say that pretty much for everyone in the room. At least I, I hope I can. Um, but we don't, we don't think about that command because we don't murder. I've never murdered it. Now Jesus gives this a true meaning. And in his meaning, there's not one of us in this room who is not a murderer. We have all at some point had hate in our hearts and we have broken the sixth commandment because Jesus says murder is anger. And it's amazing how quickly we can become angry. Just think of the last guy who cut in front of you on the highway. What went through your mind or maybe came out of your mouth. We so easily go to anger in Greek, there are two kinds of anger. One is an anger that's a, a, like a small patch of, of um, what do you call that, straw, when it comes to mind, a small patch of straw that you light on fire and it, it burns up quickly. Then there's another one, which he uses here, that is long-lasting. It's something that you feed, and it's something that grows. And Jesus uses that form of anger here, and he says the root of murder is anger that we carry around inside of us. It is something that we feed, it's something that we nurture. It's to hold someone in contempt, it's to resent a person, to wish that they were dead. It is to kill without ever pulling the trigger. It's to bear a grudge, to hold hatred in our heart. 1 John 3.15 says that if you hate your brother, if you, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer with no eternal life. And I believe when he says brother here, brother in, meaning brother and sister, it, it, is, it is perhaps especially um, among those who are Christ followers, but I, I, I think it's broader than that. Uh, because they, they had not uh, been through Acts yet when uh, brother and sister became a habit for, for Christ followers. Um, 
Chapter 5, verse 9 calls us peacemakers, and peacemaking goes, I think, beyond, um, beyond our group in the church. I think he's talking about something broader here, that we need to not hate our brothers and sisters, but it goes beyond. We are, he's going to talk later about loving your enemies. We're not even to hate our enemies. So Jesus redefines murder. He redefines murder as angry. Being angry is now defined not as the act, but it's, it's, it's defined as the attitude, the attitude that leads to the physical act of killing. So murder, if you are a murderer, he says you are liable for judgment. There may be no bloodshed, but there's anger in personal relationships. Perhaps it's a reaction because someone hurt me. And I reacted to being hurt in anger. And now I hold that person in contempt. The attitude that might lead to the action is now a violation of the commandment. And Jesus says that person is liable for judgment. And I believe in these verses Jesus would say that God is the judge and the counsel is the counsel of heaven. And the fire of hell is a statement of judgment. And he gives us two specifics. He says, if you insult your brother, or if you call your brother a fool, some people think there's, a, there's a, an escalating warning here, as well as an escalating uh, punishment, and that could be. I think perhaps he's using these words, anger and, and insult and fool, to make a point. He's going to use these words. He uses... Uh, insult, it's actually, if you have it a King James Version, you, you probably have the word raka in there. And the ESV changed that to help us understand what raka means because we don't know what raka means. Uh, and so they took it out to help us think of insulting. Uh, the word raka has, has been defined differently. Um, it, it actually has to do with... with um, if you, you think of the head, if you call someone a, a, an idiot or a, a blockhead or a nitwit or a, a numbskull, you are insulting their intelligence. And we think that's probably what Raka means. And then he says, if you call him a fool, Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Fool goes to character. If raka or, or insults go to, the, to intelligence, fool goes to the character. It has been um, defined as rebel or an apostate. It's saying you are a godless person. It's, it's attacking their morals, that you are morally bankrupt. And he says if you call your brother stupid or, or you say that your brother is morally bankrupt, you deserve the fire of hell. The punishment is the hell of fire, as he, as he calls it here. And, and that is the word um, Gehenna. It's, it's a valley around, actually, on the south side of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. And he uses the word Gehenna here, which is a, a symbolic way to say hell. What would Jesus' followers have thought of that? You know, when, if we say, you know, you're, you deserve Gehenna, we don't really, doesn't really 
doesn't really impact me. I don't know what he's, what he's really talking about. What would they have understood? Well, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we're told that Ahaz burned his sons as an offering at this place. And we're told in Jeremiah that Manasseh burned his sons as an offering at Gehenna. And we're told that the sons of Judah burned their sons as an offering to the false gods at Gehenna. This is a despicable place to God. And God punished them through the Babylonians and took them into exile. And, and decades later, they come back to, to this city of, of, Israel, of Jerusalem, and Gehenna is still there. And by this time, Jeremiah has condemned him, and God has changed the name to the Valley of Slaughter. This is a description of someone wrote about Gehenna. Gehenna became a place where corpse and of criminals, dead animals, and all manners of refuse were thrown to be destroyed. It was thus a place of burning sewage, burning flesh and garbage. Maggots and worms crawled through the waste, and the smoke smelled strong and sickening. It was a place utterly filthy, disgusting, and repulsive to their nose and eyes. Gehenna pre represented, uh, presented such a vivid image that Christ used it as a symbolic depiction of hell, a place of eternal torment, constant uncleanness, where the fires never cease burning and the worms never stopped crawling. Jesus' words would have shocked his audience, much like they should shock us. Don't try to water down the words of Jesus in this sermon. They were meant to shock us for our acclamation into the world in which we live. Because exceeding righteousness goes way beyond the standards of the world. God's not concerned with the external actions. He's concerned with the heart. He's concerned with the, the source behind the actions. In Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Mark writes this, And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Those things deserve Gehenna. They deserve hell. But there is hope. How do we avoid this problem, this ethical problem, and not murder with our thoughts and with our words. In verse 23 and 24, he says this, verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer offer your gift. Reconciliation trumps worship. Verse 23 says, if you're offering, leave it there. And he says, so, if you are there. In other words, so is another word for therefore. So, 
So in light of the seriousness of the crime that I've just described, Jesus is saying, the crime of anger and punishment of hell, you need to see the importance of reconciliation because it takes precedent over worship. The formula is not come and go. It is go and come. Then bring your gift. If you're angry at someone, someone has harmed you, or someone has harmed me, it is my responsibility to reconcile. And now in addition, he is saying, if someone has harmed you, you go and reconcile. It could be in this context that when, when they have something against you and in your, in your reaction you were angry, you still need to go and reconcile. Either way, if I have a broken relationship, who is responsible to reconcile? I am. And Jesus says this is so important that even if you are in the act of worship, you need to break from your worship and you need to go and be reconciled with the person with whom you have a problem. Now how important is this to Jesus? Well, Jesus is teaching in Galilee. And if you have a, a, a map, uh, you've got the Dead Sea and then you've got Jerusalem and way up north you have Galilee. And Jesus is teaching in Galilee. And where are sacrifices made? They're made in Jerusalem, 80 miles to the south, a three-day journey. If you're in Jerusalem and you have bought your animal that you're going to sacrifice and then you have gone through the outer court of the temple to the inner court and you've come to the altar and you're laying your animal in the sacrifice and the priest is there and you've got your knife and you're about to, to cut that animal's neck and you realize I have some, someone has something against me or I have been angry at this person, he says, leave it. And you make the three-day journey back to Galilee and you reconcile whatever that takes and then you make the three-day journey back south and then you offer your sacrifice. There may be some folks here today who need to leave worship. If you have someone that you need to reconcile with. Perhaps that's what Jesus is calling you to do, or at least make a commitment to do that. Maybe it's uh, an estranged son or daughter, or maybe it's a college friend who for years you've harbored resentment against. Maybe you need to take your spouse with you and reconcile, or take a child with you and reconcile. Jesus would say this. He would say that before you give a dollar to the new building of Providence Church, you need to reconcile with anyone whom you have harmed or has harmed you because your heart is more important than your sacrifice. It's harder to reconcile with a person than it is to put money in an offering plate. God will be more glorified with a $10 offering from someone with a clean conscience than a $10,000 offering with someone who has a, a problem with, with a brother or a sister. And I think he'd be most glorified with a $10,000 diff with a good conscience, but that's a discussion for a different day. So how do we do this? There is a stipulation here. 
Romans 12.10 says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. There are people who will not uh, reconcile. And you may not know all the people who hate you or have something against you. But he says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Someone has something against me, I need to do all I can, I need to do all I can before I come to worship God. This is very practical. 1 Samuel 15, 22, um, God says, I don't want your sacrifice, I want your heart. We're all responsible for what others hold against us. We need to make that effort. You might be rejected. And if you're rejected, then you no longer have the burden of reconciling, but you have the burden of bearing that pain. Why is this so important? One reason is that um, more gospel obedience enhances our worship and grows the church. We have not been a church of church growth strategy. We have been a church of, of loving one another, of unity. And building a new building does not grow the church. It might attract a few people for a while, but obedience does grow the church. And good relationships do grow the church. Husband and wife, children with parents, brothers with brothers, sister with sister. Growing anger in relationships will destroy the church. As much as it depends on you, when you know it, you must do something about it. It is that important. Jesus gives one more example, and I'll just briefly summarize that for you. He talks about the urgency of reconciliation and that it can save your life. He really gives a picture of a guilty party who needs to reconcile on the way to court. The person knows he's wrong. Knows he's wrong, he's done something wrong, he's being sued. Take the time now and reconcile. It is urgent. Don't wait till there is a right time. You no longer wait for reconciliation. The, the more difficult it you, the longer you wait, the more difficult it becomes to reconcile. He says, get it right or you sit in prison. This is talking about the, the debtor's prison. The Jewish, Jews had a debtor's prison. that if, if you did something and harmed someone and you had to pay them a debt, if you did not pay the debt or you could not pay the debt, you would be sent to prison until you could pay the debt. Well, how are you going to pay the debt if you're sitting in prison and you can't work? You're not. And that's his point, unless uh, you're, you have rich, a rich uncle who bails you out and, and pays your debt for you. His point is that if you do not reconcile, it, it can destroy you. It can destroy your life. And he says you need to have instant reconciliation. If you want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, understand that reconciliation is important and reconciliation is urgent. It trumps what we're doing right now, Jesus says. And it can save your life. If someone has something against me because of sin on my part or I did something really dumb, 
then I need to take steps of reconciliation. God is the final judge. Hell is the final judgment. Let those shocking words drive us back to who we are. And who we are, he talks about in the Beatitudes. We are people who stand before God empty-handed. We are people who are sinners, who have mourned over our sin. We are people who have repented and have been forgiven, and we meekly bow before Christ. If we are those people, how can we not reconcile with our brothers and sisters? God could have hated us righteously, but he sent his son to die for us and to make reconciliation between me and God, between you and God. If God did that for us, how can we not do that for each other? Why does he start here? Why does he start with anger? Probably because it's the most universal and most dangerous attitude the church can have. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Do not say, I cannot, I cannot help having a bad temper. Friend, you must help it. Pray to God to help you overcome it at once. For either you must kill it, or it will kill you. You cannot carry a bad temper into heaven. May the words of Jesus land on us in a way that drives us back to who we are. And understanding who we are, may it cause us to take action to reconcile any um, current, past, or future uh, relational issues that we may have. Let's pray together. Thank you.